Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are with us in person, are joining us via live stream, or watching on demand at some later date, we're glad for the opportunity to worship with you today. If you are part of our Dayspring family, welcome home. If you are new to Dayspring, we want you to feel like you've come home as well. When you think about it, it's amazing that through the gift of technology, we can connect to one another regardless of location and worship together. No matter when or where you are watching from, we're glad you are here with us. Here at Dayspring, we believe nothing is more important than your spiritual growth. We are committed to helping you thrive no matter where you are on your spiritual journey. Perhaps you're just curious about church, or maybe you're just looking for some hope. Maybe you don't know why you're here this morning. That's okay. Bring your questions and your doubts. You are welcome here. Your journey matters to us, and we would love nothing more than to walk with you. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church or by checking out our Facebook page. I'm Chris Voigt, lead pastor at Dayspring. I'd love to connect with you if you have questions about today's message or about the next step in your spiritual journey. If you want more information about Dayspring and getting connected into our community, I'd be glad to help you do that as well. To help you get the most out of the message today, we've prepared some discussion questions to help you process what you are learning on your own or with others. You can find the discussion guide in our resources section of our website. And now, let's worship together. Well, many of you know uh, that I have come to enjoy cooking. Well, cooking and baking, really. It's kind of therapeutic for me. It helps me relax and unwind. Uh, what's probably more interesting is that while I enjoy creating a, gro a growing variety of dishes and desserts in the kitchen, I don't really enjoy eating them all. I mean, I like what I cook most of the time. Uh, Last week for the 4th of July, I made a potato salad I'll never make again. I tried something new for Didi, and it was pretty bland. Neither of us really liked it. So uh, we won't be making that recipe again. But even when it turns out phenomenally, it's just fuel. Uh, some people live to eat, and some people eat to live. And that's, that's me. Food is fuel. It's a necessary part of my day that I wouldn't miss if I didn't have to eat although I do have an obnoxious sweet tooth that would hate me forever if I stopped downing sugar. So last weekend with the fourth and family in town and my birthday on Monday, I spent hours in the kitchen getting ready. Uh, one of the side effects of cooking uh, a, a lot is it, the mess it makes. All of those dishes. I, I think I spent just as much time washing dishes as I did cooking. Now, when it comes to dishes, besides hoping someone else will do them for you, uh, you know what I mean, uh, life is much better when someone else cleans up after you. We prefer that over cleaning up after other people. So besides the magical dish fairy stopping by, uh, we generally have two strategies when it comes to dealing with the dishes. Get them done right away or ignore them as long as we can. I like to get them done right away, hoping Dee Dee will be so overcome with gratitude that she'll come do them for me. 
Dee Dee likes to ignore them as long as she can, hoping that I'll get to them before she has to. We both live in disappointment. <laughs> Which means that when either of us get to them on a normal day, there are dishes caked with crusted dried food on them that are much harder to get clean than when they are fresh. Now, you'd think we'd just be smart and go rinse the dishes from the get-go, wouldn't you? But we're busy people. We can't afford to just waste 10 seconds. That, that, that would take, that would be like, psh, forget that. So as a result, our food gets dried and crusty and harder to deal with in order to save us time in the moment, even if it doesn't save us time later. We are just a barrel of inconsistencies at the Voigt home. <laughs> like, have you ever tried getting melted cheese off the plate once it's dried? It's got a super glue bond that's better than Gorilla Glue. It comes off way better when you soak it. Now, as an expert in washing dishes, and I am licensed worldwide, I can testify that the ease of washing dishes comes down to creating the right environment. You can either use your own strength or let the power of the water do the job for you as your dishes soak. Just let them abide in the water, and the water will do the work for you. Which brings us to our next section of 1 John this morning. Uh, for those of you joining us for the first time today, either here in the room or online, we're working our way through the three letters the Apostle John wrote to, to the churches scattered around Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, he wrote them near the end of his life, when he was about 90 years old, uh, probably from the city of Ephesus, although they could have been written from Patmos, the island where he was exiled after being, uh, surviving being boiled in oil. Uh, that's where he had the vision that gave us the last book of the New Testament, Revelation. Uh, but it was probably Ephesus where he returned to and lived after his exile ended. Uh, he wrote these letters to address the doubts that all of us have at some point or points on our spiritual journey. And as we've learned so far, our fellowship with God and other Christ followers develops in us some common characteristics. And the presence of those characteristics in our lives gives us the assurance of our salvation. They prove our faith for us. Uh, the absence of these characteristics doesn't necessarily mean that we aren't saved. Uh, instead, the absence of these characteristics raises red flags to help us identify a fellowship problem with God and or other Christ followers. We can't separate the two. We can't have fellowship with God while being out of fellowship or uh, in conflict with other Christ followers. And we can't have fellowship with other Christ followers while being out of fellowship or in, in conflict with the way we live with God. Jesus linked the two inextricably when he said that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The law of love that we are called to live by under the new covenant with Jesus combines these two laws into one. Biblical fellowship is more than just friendliness between you and God and friendliness between you and other Christ followers. Biblical fellowship uh, is intimacy in that relationship, whether the intimacy is with God or brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Intimacy is allowing someone to see the, the authentic, real you at a heart level and you seeing the authentic, real them at a heart level. A biblical fellowship is that sense of belonging you find when you aren't hiding anything and you are accepted for who you are, warts and all. It's, uh, and vice versa. It's a reciprocated connection. Not that God has any warts, obviously, just to be clear. I have enough for both of us. Uh, so that fellowship produces joy. It gives you the desire and power to walk in the light instead of dance with the dark. It unleashes agape love, which is the deepest kind of love that we are called to. And it gives us discernment, the ability to judge between light and dark, uh, love and hate, truth and error. Those characteristics assure us of our relationship and standing with God. And the lack of those characteristics helps us to recognize a clog in the fellowship pipe so that we can unclog it. Now, as we began to see last week, fellowship is rooted in our abidience. Now, don't rush off to dictionary.com to check the existence of the word abidience. I can't tell you. I've already had people emailing me asking if we made a typo. I just like to make the grammar nerds in the room a little itchy. <laughs> abidience is the act of abiding in Christ. In the original language, John has used the word that we most commonly think of as abide nine times by my count so far in this chapter, which is a big hurricane clue that abidience is important to our fellowship. And as we've seen so far, we abide when we allow our lives to soak in the presence of God, which begins in God's Word. But when we think of it that way, it feels passive, almost like abide is simply an adjective that describes something you do when you want to connect with God, and then you get back to real life. Like, I've soaked the dishes, now they're done. Time to get them dirty again. But in the original language, abide is a verb, which is why I invented my own word, abidience. It makes it feel more active. It is something that we continue to do. It is an ongoing activity, not a one-time event. It calls for consistent action. Abidience conveys a state of being. You are always soaking no matter what you are doing. Now, for you practical people who want to know whether you are soaking enough, abidience leads to believing or discerning the truth, obeying the truth or walking in the light, and loving other Christians, not to mention joy. So, if you are a Christ follower and you find yourself out of abidance, it is because you have disobeyed God's word, lacked love for a brother or sister, or believed a lie, or you haven't been soaking. And the solution is to confess your sins and claim God's forgiveness. Now, as we continue where we left off last week, John continues to encourage us, us uh, he, to encourage us to abide in Christ and pursue righteous living as we wait with hope of his coming again. In fact, in these next verses, uh, he gives us four blessings of abidance. Let's pick it up in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, and we'll work our way through verse 3 of chapter 3 today. He writes, And now, dear children, 
remain in fellowship with Christ so that when he returns, you will be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. Now, here the phrase remain in fellowship is the 10th appearance in this chapter of the word for abide. It is also the first reference to Christ's return. And here we see that the first blessing of abidance is that you will be confident at his coming. Uh, when Jesus comes again to judge the earth, whether it's today, next Friday, next year, or the next century, we will either be full of courage in his presence, full of boldness in his presence, or we will shrink back in shame. Now, if you're like me, you probably scratch your head a little bit at the picture that John paints in this verse. How could any Christ follower shrink back in shame? It seems a little inconsistent with what we know from other places in Scripture. Is it possible to be saved and yet ashamed when you stand before Jesus? And the answer must be yes, because we see it here in this verse. John could be referring to two things. First, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes these words in trying to get the church to understand that Paul, Apollos, and Peter are all on the same team, so their squabbling about who's the better teacher is meaningless. But it also has relevance here. So uh, let's, let's jump to there, uh, beginning in verse 12. Uh, anyone who builds on the foundation, uh, the foundation he's talking about is Christ here. Uh, anyone who builds their life uh, in him uh, may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Uh, there is a difference between being accepted and being acceptable. Uh, we are all accepted through Jesus Christ, but our works will be judged and everything we've done outside of Christ, either in our own strength or with bad or mixed motives, will not make it through the fire. They will not be acceptable. And we will understand the great loss of our unacceptable works during that time. So in our context, a Christian who has not walked in fellowship with Christ, has not abided in obedience, love, and truth, will lose his rewards and as a result will feel ashamed. But it's also possible that John is talking about those who are lost, those who don't know Christ at all. They will certainly know shame when they stand before Jesus Christ. However, John didn't write this letter to the lost, and Paul was writing to the church in Corinth. They were writing to Christians. So I would lean toward the first explanation, which is also more prevalent in the commentaries. Uh, whatever it means to experience shame on that great day, Abidience is the key to shamelessness. Now we find the next uh, second blessing of abidance in this next verse. You will be certain you are his child. John continues in verse 29 uh, uh, into chapter 3. Let's see if I can get back to there now. Uh, he writes, Since we know that Christ is righteous... 
We also know that all who do what is right are God's children. See how very much our Father loves us. For he calls us his children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. Okay, now it might help us uh, here to jump back to the Gospel of John chapter 15 for a minute. Uh, Jesus provides some clarification. So let's pick it up right at John chapter 15, verse 1. And there, uh, there John writes that Jesus said, I am the true grapevine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me, abide in me, and I will remain or abide in you. For a, a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain or abide in me. Now, this is the gold star passage of what it means to abide in Christ. When we abide in Christ, he abides in us, and our lives will bear fruit. When we do not abide, our lives will not bear fruit. That's what we can take away from verse 4 uh, in Paul's passage. Back in 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, the vine is righteous. When we abide, the fruit of our lives is righteous. The fruit reveals that the root is connected to the vine. The, your righteous living gives you certainty that you are indeed a child of God because you can't truly be righteous apart from God. You can be good, certainly. There are a lot of good people who aren't Christ followers, but righteousness only comes through abidience, through our deep fellowship with Christ. Children of God will grow to look like God the Father. Our practice is the proof of our parentage. In the next verse, John takes this argument a step further. The very first word, see, here in the New Living Translation, doesn't convey the sense of wonder that John means here. The King James Version uses the word behold, which isn't a word that we use very often anymore. But it raises the level of excitement John is trying to communicate about this truth, far more than just the exclamation point at the end of the sentence in the New Living Translation. So it's, behold, we are children of God, because God loves us far deeper than we could ever understand this side of heaven. He, his love is ours to enjoy now and for all of eternity. It will never be taken away. This isn't lip service. A teacher might say that the students in her class are her children. And though it does con convey a sense of belonging, it isn't actually true. That teacher isn't responsible to pay for college or weddings or medical bills. If they were, I would be sending a bill to my children's teachers. The teacher might be in that child's life for a season, but not for the same, not, not for, for life, the same way that a parent is. That teacher might love her kids, but not the same way a mom and dad do. Our union with the actual Son of God is an adoption into the family of God. And having been adopted, we not only bear his name, but we have also been given the very nature of God. A nature that stands in stark contrast to the nature of this world. The more we become like Christ, 
the starker the contrast. It's a nature that those who are still of the world can never understand. Though we might act like it at times, we are not like them, but have this part of our lives that is religious. Uh, several years ago, my son Josh inherited my 1988 Honda Civic hatchback. Anything but a cool car. Now, because my father-in-law thinks every boy should have a cool car, not just one that works, he worked with a mechanic to rebuild the car from the inside out. New engine, new interior, new paint job, and a noisy muffler that, to my father-in-law's ears, screamed cool. I mean, at least it was cooler than it was. The car might still have the shell of a 1988 Honda Civic, but it was no longer simply a Honda Civic. It was gutted and rebuilt. The same is true for us. We have been gutted and are in the process of being rebuilt. We have been transformed even though we look the same on the outside. The world can't understand that. They have no context to process the truth outside of Christ. A blessing of obedience is the certainty of your adoption, that you belong to Jesus Christ, to God the Father. Now, the third blessing of obedience is that you will be conformed to Christ. This transformation that separates us from the world has begun but isn't complete yet. Uh, verse 2. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. Now, there is a tension to the Christian life that theologians call the already not yet tension. Already not yet tension. We are already children of God. We already have this birthright. At the same time, we have not yet fully realized all the benefits of being children of God. We have not fully stepped into all that we will be. We are in process, works under construction. We are not yet complete, and if you've ever been on a construction site, you know they are messy. We are so far from what we will be that we can't even imagine what the final product will look like. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul writes that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined. The thought has never even entered our minds what God has prepared for those who love him. Now think about that. I have a pretty good imagination. I'm pretty creative. I've spent some time thinking about eternity, and yet what I've come up with isn't even close. The right thoughts have never entered my mind or yours, or anyone's. In order for us to see Jesus as he is, our transformation will first need to be complete. We are not yet like him, and only those like him can see him as he is. A 17th century preacher and theologian, Jonathan Edwards, said, Grace is glory begun. We are all recipients of God's grace. His glory has begun. And glory is grace completed. 
the perfection of God's grace will be, be realized in our full, complete, total, and permanent glorification. We will finally be capable of perceiving not only the physical realm, but the spiritual realm. Which makes me think of Elisha's servant. Uh, Elisha was a prophet in the Old Testament times. He was Elijah's assistant until Elijah was taken home in a fiery chariot. In 2 Kings chapter 6, we read that the king of Aram was at war with Israel. And every time he made a move, God would warn Elisha. Elisha would warn the king of Israel, who would make the appropriate adjustments to his strategy. And nothing would come of the king of Aram's plans. It happened over and over and over. And every time it happened, the king of Aram got a little hotter hotter into the collar. It ticked him off and finally pulled all of his officers and commanders together to find out who the mole was. Someone was clearly batting for both teams. And one of them tells him that it's Elisha who is helping the king of Israel. So the king of Aram sends his army to surround Dothan, the city where Elisha lives, so that they can capture him. And Elisha's servant goes out the next morning and he sees the horses and the chariots and the army. And he gets scared. He runs back inside and he's like, what do we do? And Elisha tells him not to worry and prays that God would open his eyes so that he could see not just the physical reality, but the spiritual reality as well. And the servant goes back outside and sees the army surrounding the city, themselves surrounded by the host of heaven, visible only in the spiritual realm. And just as Aram's army moves in, Elisha prayed for God to strike them blind and Heaven's army gets to work. There is a reality that exists that we believe is actually more real than the physical world we live in. We can't see what's going on in that world yet. That's where the glory of Christ is waiting for us. And a day is coming when we will be transformed into people who can see just like Jesus so we can actually see Jesus. It will take our relationship with Jesus to a whole new level. And though we don't know all that being made like Jesus will entail, we do know it will be better than we could ever hope or imagine. And it won't be just for a moment like Elisha's servant, but for all of eternity. And in the waiting, we find the final blessing of obedience. You will be consistent in your consecration. You'll be consistent in your consecration. Consecration is just a churchy word that means set apart. The act of becoming sacred. It's another way of saying that abiding will make us more consistent on the journey to become like Christ. John puts it this way in verse 3. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. Now, if the promise of verse 2, that we will be like Christ, is the definition of Christian hope, verse 3 is the natural response to our hope. Our hope for eternity should lead us to action. Uh, Theologian Daniel Aiken says, the hope, this hope is the confident certainty that God is going to conform me to the exact image of his Son. And consequently, it motivates me to continually pursue a life of purity and holiness, just as Jesus is pure and holy. The word pure in this verse means free from contamination. 
The word can be used to mean ceremonial cleansing. James uses it to mean a cleansing of the heart. Peter uses it to mean a cleansing of the soul. There is nothing ceremonial about the cleansing in this verse. Uh, John means a cleansing of one's total life. My hope in the future gives me what I need to pursue holiness in the present. Now, to bring it back to where we started, soaking in the presence of Christ, abiding in Christ, always leaves us changed. It purifies, it sanctifies, and all the other good eyes. The more we abide, the more consistent we'll be on our journey to become like Christ, which leads to more abiding and becoming more like Christ. It's a beautiful circle of transformation. This is our highest calling. In fact, when it comes to applying this truth, I think we should adopt Paul's perspective as our own. In Philippians chapter 3, he writes this, beginning in verse 12. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection. But I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. Now, if Paul isn't there yet, neither are we. We all have sin in our lives. I think that's been pretty clear to us all as we've worked our way through the first two chapters of 1 John. We are people in process. When we are honest, most of us would have to admit that we're pretty casual in our approach to the process. Our priorities may not be upside down, but they're not all in place either. We get distracted, we get discouraged, we get disobedient. But are we going to let those things get in the way of pursuing Jesus? Are we going to continue to let them slow us down? Like, no, press on. Press on toward the goal to win the prize. So what is slowing you down right now? What sin do you struggle with? What lie do you believe that is tripping you up? Confess it and move on. Like, I'm not trying to sound glib. Sin is serious business and we should take it seriously. But we also shouldn't let it have any more power in our lives than it already steals from us. So whatever your sin is, whatever lie you believe, confess it and move on. Press on and change your focus. Uh, Paul continues, No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. The heavenly prize is that we will be like Christ. The next step is to focus on the future. Too many of us live in bondage to the past. Too many of us are weighed down by the present. There is no end to the negative scripts that run through our minds about ourselves. I told you one of mine last week. I am not enough. Yes, I am, dang it. And I'm not going to believe the lie for one more second. So I am rewriting the script. I'm using the truth that I find in Scripture as I soak as my text for the new script. I am a beloved child of God, and Jesus has made me enough. Now, I am imagining who I will be on that day 
even though I will be completely wrong because no mind can conceive what Jesus will really be like, what it will be like to be like Jesus. But until God hands down the final script, I am focused on the future and imagining the things I will be as if they are already true. That's what Paul is saying here. I've got my eye on the prize, and the prize is that I'll be like Jesus. So focus on the future. Rewrite your script using the truth we find in God's word. Soak in it. And then last but not least, give it away. The day is coming when it will be too late for someone to choose Christ. People are going to hell. And we are way too casual about that. We will never be like Jesus if we don't care about people the way he does. People are going to hell. And the problem is that we are apathetic about it. In fact, we look at some of what's going on in the world and we think they deserve it. They do. But I've got news for you. So do you. And yet someone loved you enough to tell you about Jesus. Who should you be talking to? Now, as we close, we're going to head toward communion. And as we do, I'm, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes for some silent contemplation. We might have only covered a few verses, but that doesn't mean that there hasn't been a lot to think about. So in the silence, confess. And then as you soak in his presence, reorient your focus. And then as we celebrate communion together, let's consider it a prayer of consecration, a moment of decision where we dedicate ourselves to becoming a little more like Jesus every moment of every day and not letting anything get in the way. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us in worship today. Whether you are part of our Dayspring family or just joined us for the first time, we'd love to walk with you on your spiritual journey. Feel free to drop us an email if you have questions or want more information. For those of you who choose to invest financially at Dayspring, thank you for your generosity and your commitment to helping others grow. Every gift, large or small, matters, and God never ceases to surprise us with what He is able to do because of your commitment to following Him in every part of your life. If you're our guest today, please know that we consider your time a gift to us and this service our gift to you. There is no expectation or obligation for you to give. For those of you who would like to partner financially, there are three easy ways for you to give. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen. And for those of you who still use them, you can also mail a check to us. We'd like to thank those of you who subscribe, like, and share these messages with your friends. If you are listening on our podcast, feel free to leave a review. More of Jesus is the answer to all of life's problems, and we appreciate your help inviting others to check him out. We'll see you next week.